an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and this is episode 70, a special edition between my normal episodes. And occasionally I find time to insert one of these uh, special episodes. And this week, it wasn't so much that I had the time, but that the issue and topic seemed quite urgent. Last Friday, March 15th, as the world is now all too aware, a shooter opened fire in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, killing 50 people uh, during their Friday afternoon prayer time. And the world is still in shock. I know for myself personally, it was several days of just numbness and disbelief and just wondering if and when we are going to find a way as a as a human community to get along with each other and at least tolerate each other, if not embrace each other as sisters and brothers. Unfortunately, in the aftermath of this shooting, which was accompanied by a, a fairly detailed manifesto by the shooter full of convoluted and confusing rhetoric and name dropping, the media and popular commentators and bloggers started uh, trying to distance themselves from any responsibility that they may have for this kind of uh, event that happened in, in Christchurch, New Zealand. What immediately troubled me was that commentators, a particular set of commentators, including some ex-Muslim members of the secular community, rushed to say that the ideology and the philosophy that the shooter cited in his manifesto really had nothing to do with his actions. And certainly the people that he named in his manifesto Uh, were not responsible for his actions. And of course, he alone is directly responsible for his actions. But he was deeply influenced by a kind of internet viral hatred that has emerged over the past many years, especially since 9-11, towards the Muslim community and peace-loving Muslims around the world, being lumped together under um, the umbrella of Islamism and um, jihadi violence And I I just wanted to try to figure out a way to talk about this issue, on the one hand, affirming the Muslim community and our need to support and love the community right now, especially as they're going through this horrible trauma, and at the same time, leaving open the possibility of critiquing bad ideas or dangerous philosophies that lead to violence of many different types. What I ultimately hope we can do is reflect on our own actions and our own attitudes long enough to realize that the hypocrisy that we often uh, embody but don't see. If ideas have consequences for Islamists, then they have consequences for everyone. And the ideas that this shooter was filling his head with are consequential and led to this horrible tragedy, the the worst shooting in the history of New Zealand. And so to talk about this a bit further and to, and to grapple with it in a deeper way, I invited Ina to come on my show to talk about uh, how she, as an ex-Muslim herself, goes about maintaining this sensitivity and balance in her uh, dialogue with people and her criticism of Islam and her love for, for Muslim people. Uh, Ina was raised in Saudi Arabia. She's of Pakistani background and is a prolific blogger and podcaster. She is the host of the podcast Polite Conversations and the author of the blog Nice Mangoes. You can find her on Twitter at Nice Mangoes, and she is very often um, sharing her views about the way in which 
ordinary peace-loving Muslims and the whole Muslim community get swept up in attacks in, in our current climate. She herself, as you'll see, is quite critical of Islam and the um, abuses that she and others have suffered at the hands of Islam and the problems that still exist to this very day in Muslim-majority countries and in countries where fundamentalist Islam is, holds sway. But at the same time, she recognizes the danger of hateful rhetoric, even when directed at Islam, to affect Muslim people. So I hope you'll pay attention closely and tell me what you think. If you want to write to me, let me know what you thought of this episode. You can do that at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. If you want to learn more about the podcast and all the work that we're doing at Life After God, please visit my website, lifeaftergod.org. If you want to be a part of helping make this podcast happen, I'd invite you to join as a member. You can do that at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Thank you to each and every one of you who contribute monthly to make this happen. Uh, I feel, especially at moments like this, like it's so important. Um, we're having some really important conversations in the members' Facebook group. So if you want to join that, um, look at the show notes here where I explain how to be a part of the members' community. But without any further delay, here is my conversation with Ina. Ina, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, what a pleasure. I've followed you on Twitter for quite a while and appreciate your perspective so much. And uh, we're talking on Wednesday, March the 20th, less than a week after some of the, the most dramatic news we've received in a long time. And I just couldn't resist uh, trying to have a chat with you about some of what's going on in the world and and your perspective Um so for those of us that are on Twitter a lot, um, you're nice mangoes on Twitter, and uh, I'm sure many of the listeners follow you, but just in case, um, can you just give us a little background about who you are and kind of what your sort of mission, I guess, if we can put it that way, uh, is in your, in your work? Um, so I'm an ex-Muslim. Uh, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I'm of Pakistani background. Um, and I found like other atheists online a few years ago and felt like this amazing connection. Like, wow, there's ex-Muslims like me and, you know, a place where we can go and discuss our experiences with Islam. And quickly that turned into something a lot more sinister than I first saw it to be. And now we're in this Trumpian era and I find myself in this strange position of having to, like, I don't know, be the one in a sort of defensive position about hmm. Muslims and Islam. And I really don't want to be in that position because I want to have the freedom to be critical of it, you know, just as, you know, you may feel about crit criticizing conservative Christianity, right? Sure. So it feels kind of it's it's a very strange position to be in, but yet when we're being marginalized, like, you know, it's people aren't going to ask me what my beliefs are or how secular I am in my life. When they look at my passport, when they hear my Muslim name, right. Anti-Muslim bigotry affects all of us, our families, people we love, you know, they go to mosques and just recently, as we saw in New Zealand, 50 innocent people were gunned down as they were praying in a mosque. Now, as much as I would love to criticize mosques and all of that right now, it just seems not the right time or climate to do that. And I think just to further set the context, like is Islam was not healthy for you. Is that right? I mean, that's your experience of Islam was not good. Well, actually, I mean, the thing is I grew, I grew up in Saudi, right? So as people know, Saudi Arabia isn't the most... Hmm. Isn't the most liberal, freedom-loving country, not right. progressive, not great on women's rights or minority rights or anything. And they have Sharia law, like they actually have Sharia law, not like how <laughs> Twitter right-wingers think Europe has Sharia law. Right. Um, and, you know, I had to wear a, an abaya or a burqa, as you may have heard it called. They're slightly different, but mm -hmm. for the purpose of this conversation, you know, the whole black cloak, because of the state, not because of my family, but because I had to go out in public and there was no other choice. 
morality police would come after you if you weren't appropriately like, covered. Like literal morality police, not again, like literal like, morality police. Yeah, <laughs> not like right wing Twitter. Yeah, no, <laughs> actual morality police. Yeah. Wow. Right. So, I mean, I would love to con- criticize and focus on conservative Islam, but anything I say is always hijacked by right wingers, far righters, you know, and a lot of ex-Muslims in my position are happy to have it, have their voices hijacked and they kind of cash in on it. And I just can't do that. You know, like my, I came to atheism from my progressive views and I rejected religion. I rejected Islam because of my progressive views. Mm. So to come out of religion and then come full circle and defend like conservative Christians in the West is not something I'm okay doing, but a lot of people are because that's where the attention is, where the money is, where the opportunities are. If you want to be a well-known critic of Islam, joining hands with the right in the West is the best way to do it. Yeah, and there's, there's, it's often, um, from where I sit at least, articulated this critique of Islam is, is and, and actually so many of the um, critiques that come from the skeptic movement seem very uh, context-free. So it's almost as though... If you'd use reason and logic, you can remove the influence of context or history and just talk about pure ideas as though they have no connection to to anything else. And I see this uh, in the conversation around Islam as well uh, to say, well, I have the right as a liberal in a liberal democracy and with freedom of speech to criticize anything I want. And I actually, you know, as, as a person living in a liberal democracy, take that, uh, take that liberty very seriously. Like I, I definitely don't want to live in a society where I can't critique publicly politicians or ideas or institutions. Right. So I take that freedom to speak my mind very seriously. So I'm on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to people who say, you know, if I want to criticize Islam publicly the day of the attack uh, or the day after or whatever, like immediately in the wake of this. Um, well, no one's saying make it illegal. You right, know? right, like, right. I would be very against that if someone tried to legislate against that. Mm. You can still express your opinion and say it's in poor taste, though. Right. And so it is, it really, um, and then it seems like on the right, anything that is expressed as being in poor taste, you're you're now... Um, like tone policing or or, yeah. or silencing criticism or something like that. When it to me, it seems like these are human beings, you know, that we're talking about. People who maybe they were misguided in their beliefs, but they were still human beings who died unnecessarily, completely mm-hmm. for no reason. And that's the most depressing part of it. Like I used to be a very proud member of the ex-Muslim movement. And now I just cringe. Like, I think um, when Trump was elected, it was really like a turning point, you know, like everything kind of shifted. And you'd assume that their rhetoric and tone and everything would shift accordingly. But they did not change. And they still carelessly, you know, go on far right media outlets, Breitbart, uh, Rebel Media to say things like Islam is not compatible with planet earth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was just actually um, having a conversation with someone that's part of the formal uh, ex-Muslim kind of secular movement. And they, they were expressing an interest in like destroying Islam. And, (laughs) and I, on the one hand that sounds, you know, first thing that comes to mind is that sounds completely unrealistic. Like if I were to say, I want to destroy Christianity. I'm like, well, you know, good luck. Uh, it's been around yeah, exactly. for, you know, millennia and it seems pretty tenacious and adaptable. So I don't think anybody, especially not one person, but not even a small movement or a large movement is going to destroy any major religion. And even if one could do that, I, I question the, you know, the goal, like why it's, and when I asked about that, the person said something about, well, just like I want to destroy, you know, anti-vax kind of uh, mentality it's equally destructive to people but i 
I, I definitely feel, and I want to get your take on this, I feel like people hold their you know, religious beliefs in a different way than they hold their anti-vax views or their political, their favorability towards a particular candidate for office or something like that. It's intimately connected, isn't it? I mean, it seems like separating between like love the Muslim, hate the Islam is like Christian saying love the sinner, hate the sin. I, I, it seems very difficult at times to separate those two. At times, yeah. I mean, it's definitely possible, right? But in a climate like this where even your president is, you know, a blatant anti-Muslim bigot calling for Muslim bans, things have gone so far, Muslims have become so dehumanized, it seems, that that at this time, it's hard to do that. You know, so what I was saying earlier is that it's been so depressing to see the ex-Muslim whataboutery, the atheist scene, and, you know, rational skeptic scene, like the takes coming from there have been horrific. You know, they're just like some variation of, uh, but what about, you know, all the Christianophobia that you spread? Or, you know, would you would you be okay with people not letting you criticize Christianity just because somewhere in the world Christians were attacked? Or don't blame, you know... Don't blame the media. Don't blame the critics of Islam. And it's like, it's such a double standard from when there's an Islamist attack. It's like, you know, there's kind of a blame thrown at the whole Muslim world at like, you know, right. this ideology. So that hypocrisy is just, it's something to witness. Like, I didn't think I would so quickly see both sides of this movement, you know, like right. I didn't think I'd see white supremacist terror so often and so dangerous. Like just ask me like, you know, the version of me from like four years ago, if, if I thought I'd see that, I didn't think I would, Hmm. but now that it's kind of happening from the other end of the world, like the terrorism is happening here and it's white supremacist ideology everything that they said about Islamist ideology just doesn't apply all of a sudden. Everything that they said about holding um, the ideology accountable about naming and shaming, like Majid Nawaz even had like a term for people who wouldn't like name Islamism, you know, he called it like the Voldemort effect. Right. You can't speak it. Yeah. But now he's all like, how is it helpful to call this, you know, to call it out? You know, some someone did a viral tweet about where they listed all these like different terrorist attacks recently, like far right terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. And they just listed that everything was done by a white supremacist and Majid was right under it. Like, how is that helpful? You know, mm. it's, it's helpful. Like, dude, yeah, because it <laughs> identifies the source. Just look at your own words, you know, yeah. about Islamism. Yeah, and 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 the sense that ideas have consequences. I mean, I remember exactly. this being, and and I remember hearing Sam Harris say, um, you know, when the when the Islamists tell us that their motivation is their religion, we should believe yeah. them. You know, we should believe them. That like, if a terrorist says, "I am doing this terrorism in the name of Allah, and I'm doing it because it's my ideology to build the caliphate," blah 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 that we should take them at their word, right? And I was like, I was persuaded by that. I'm like, okay, well, like, it's not the only factor involved, but mm-hmm. if they say that this is one of their factors involved, yeah. then I think, okay, like then then at least they think it's one of the factors. And yeah. and then when the guy writes this manifesto and he says, you know, PewDiePie and Candace Owens, and then for people to immediately jump to their defense and say, this is nothing to do with nothing to do with yeah and like it's the same kind of excuses that they would complain yeah, about yeah i'm like what about the ideology i thought ideology had consequences but here's the thing right there's a layer of confusion confusion too because there's like this whole meme like lol trolling layer to it right like mm. this whole internet culture this internet radicalization there's so much plausible denial like that's the whole point of it like that okay sign right just, just make kidding. it something that has the plausible deniability so that you can be like what i was just doing the okay hand sign you idiot you think that's a white supremacist symbol right yeah and so then they'll make fun of anyone that calls it out as a white supremacist hand sign but i mean when actual white supremacists are doing it to signal their white supremacy like richard spencer or this dude or 
tons of other people, then I'm sorry. Even if it started off as some kind of troll or joke, it does become a white supremacist hand sign. And that's not to say that anyone ever spotted doing the okay hand sign is now a white supremacist. You know, like people will throw pictures of Obama doing it like at you. It's right. like, no, no, no. You have to understand context, right? Right. But we do say that like like with the Sig Hale, you know, that's become such a a meme in the culture that anybody's seen doing that, it's instantly associated, you know, and we don't question that. We say, yeah, well, that's something you should not do. And in Germany, I, if I understand correctly, it's illegal to mm-hmm. flash that sign, you know, in public because of what it means. And and I just feel like people have this, I guess somehow on the right, there's this sense of this trolling that you're talking about, which is like, yeah, they can always say they're just joking. And... Well, that's the thing with the subscribe to PewDiePie too, right? Right. Yeah, he does have like shady connections and has said shady things. It's become like this dog whistle, mm. but yet it's still just him saying subscribe to this YouTuber. You know, what's the harm in that? Right. You can't blame the YouTuber. But then, you know, people started going through the, the PewDiePie's like list of follows and he followed all, like I think someone on Twitter put it as like right wing radicalization starter pack. And oh my so goodness, yeah. he had all the worst people like Molyneux, Dave Rubin, uh, terrible other YouTubers. I don't. I don't even remember. Yeah, who, I can't but like remember all, names. all the bad people. <laughs> and then yeah. all of a sudden, when people started pointing it out, he unfollowed everybody. Mm. Right, and it's like, okay, so if you're if you're saying that you're just following a bunch of random accounts, both on the left and the right and the far right, yeah, like you know, I follow Jordan Peterson. It's not because yeah, I love his views. I follow him because I want to see what the fuck he's saying. Right. So, okay, if that's the case, then don't unfollow everyone when people point it out, right? Right. So, yeah. So there seems to be another response happening in the secular community as well in little pockets that I see, which is, you know, people sort of coming to the defense of local Muslim communities that they might live near. Um, And I, I find that these tend to be secular groups who are actually involved in their local community, who actually may be doing some interfaith dialogues, maybe trying to normalize atheism in the interfaith community. And at the same time, they learn the nuances that not all, you know, Muslims are jihadi fighters, you know, that, that they're, (laughs) you know what? It shocks me. (laughs) The level of dehumanization that there is for Muslims here in, in the West, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, because I've grown up around Muslims and in Saudi Arabia and, you know, most of the people I love in the world are Muslim and they're just mm. like anybody else. Right. And it, I, I have a hard time understanding how it came to this. I think everyone is a fucking jihadi, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, it was sort of like I grew up in the 80s and... um you know, the fear of the Russians was, I guess, my experience of that. And I remember meeting a Russian foreign exchange student when I was a young kid and, and thinking, oh gosh, he seems normal. You know, like I was, I was picturing like the red army, like every, every Russian I met was this like communist invader. I saw Red Dawn, you know, the movie Red Dawn, but literally the movie starts with like Russian paratroopers, like dropping into a suburban neighborhood, you know, and this was the fear that we lived with, you know, as, as kids in the eighties that the Russians were going to invade and that nuclear war was just, you know, a button away, which I guess it was just a button away, but but this was kind of the thing that we were afraid of Russians. Like Russians were, I guess, these bad people. And, you know, I've been doing interfaith work. I mean, I, as you know, I was a pastor for a number of years and very involved in interfaith. And now I'm a humanist chaplain at USC in addition to the work I do uh, at SSA. And, and I interact with people of all different sorts of religions all the time. And um, I just, maybe, maybe people just need to get out more, you know, like, like, uh, talk to some Muslims or get, get to know their Muslim neighbor. We had an SSA chapter in response to this, say they're going to organize their student chapter of the Secular Student Alliance, I think in Oregon, to go to a, a mosque and visit and have a tour and, and speak to the imam and, um, and just kind of get 
oriented to, you know, Muslims in their neighborhood and, and American Islam. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that well, would Well, I mean, the media is the media is at fault too, right? Even just like mainstream media, not mm. far right, not Fox News. The way that they portray Muslims is kind of like a caricature. It's very one-dimensional. Mm. They'll always portray them as extremely conservative. There's no diversity shown amongst Muslims. It's always like the hijab-wearing conservative Muslims. That's Muslim, you know? Right. But they don't talk about queer Muslims. They don't talk about secular Muslims. You know, just now on TV, you're starting to see more I guess actors of Muslim background, you're starting to Hmm. see characters that may be Muslim, that the character isn't entirely based on their Muslimness. They're not necessarily a terrorist. Do you know the organization Muslims for Progressive Values? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. I don't know how good or bad they are though. Yeah. There's a lot of people that brand themselves progressive, but they're really like Trump voters like Asra Namani. So I don't know if she's right. Yeah, that's not this. Um, This is Ani Zonneveld. She's uh, someone that I met doing interfaith work here in the U.S. um, And she's um, been an activist for, you know, uh, I guess like in mixed prayer spaces in the mosque instead of gender separation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, anti-war and peace and, and just very, very, very progressive in that sense, really at, at her own risk in many cases. And I actually interviewed her on an earlier episode of this podcast and, and she's, yeah, she's amazing. I mean, there is a, um, uh, it seems like a, in small pockets, a movement to do some reform work within Islam, the way that Christianity had a kind of reformation um, but then again, I was talking to someone in the ex-Muslim movement who says, you know, there's no hope for reformation. It needs Ugh. to be eradicated. And I'm just like, eradicated? Like, what? Yeah. Eradicated? That sounds violent to me. And I know he didn't mean it violent, but <laughs> I don't, at least I don't think he did. I would give him that benefit of that doubt. But but what? how do you eradicate a world religion that is the fastest it's growing? It's just an irresponsible thing to say. It seems know? to me, yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's very unrealistic. You're not getting rid of a religion that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's. I, I think it's best to support the progressive voices within the religion, right? Yeah. And it'll just, wa- like modernity will water it down. It's happening. I mean, there's all kinds of cultural Muslims that aren't really like staunch that aren't practicing. Yeah. It just happens. Yeah. And that's, that's how, that's how it's going to happen. I mean, it has to be organic. There can't be this like forceful evangelical kind of like preachy atheist movement that eradicates it. That sounds awful. Yeah. And it seems to me that the best purpose for an ex-Muslim organization would be to actually provide, you know, physical and emotional support for those that are leaving, because that does seem harrowing to me. Absolutely. And that's what what they did. That's what uh, ex-Muslim groups did. But now, I mean, they dabble in a bit more, you know, like Hmm. there's like people going to Muslim events, standing outside or like, I don't know, it just seems like trolling, going to gay pride parades, and I don't know, like just being nasty to queer Muslims saying, it's just not the time or place, you know? Like, there are situations where I can agree with those kinds of tactics, but when there's already people that are having a hard time finding their place, when it's like gay Muslims... I don't know why you have to go there and be like, but Islam is, you know, bad. It's done this. It's done this. Yes, it's there, there's a lot of homophobia that comes from Islam. Right. But when gay Muslims are out celebrating themselves and their space, is it really fair to shit all over that? I mean, that's a new freedom for them. So they're celebrating that, of course. Yeah. And it's, I think, you know, similarly, although less intense, 
in Christianity, there's a there's sometimes, you know, a frustration with progressive Christians who will say, you know, I'm a part of a church now that accepts me, even though, you know, Christianity in general rejects, you know, being gay or lesbian or trans um, or queer in any way. You know, and I've found a space within Christianity where I'm accepted. And part of me wants to say, like, but you know, why would you stay? They don't. Oh, totally. I agree you know? with you there. But then, but then, they, and I they have found met it. a lot of frustrations with progressive Muslims. Mm-hmm. I really do. But I just don't know what a productive way to have that discussion is. You know, like where is the climate? It's not here, right? To to be shit. It's not in the West. Maybe if I was in Pakistan. And Muslims are the, you know, the only people around, then I can pick my battles with progressive Muslims and be like, what the fuck are you doing? You're supporting this horrible regime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I wanted to ask you about, too, because I feel like there's a bit of denial, too, on the part of so many of these that that could be characterized as on the right, you know, that that there's almost no power analysis in terms of, you know, Muslim majority countries where there's this mass oppression, like what you experienced in Saudi Arabia, where it's, you know, codified into the government. So it's not just Islam that's, you know, oppressing you. It's the it's the state. And and then coming then to the United States, where Muslims are a minority who are being harassed by a Christian majority. Like, how do you explain to people uh, who are struggling with this? Like, hey, I should be able to criticize Islam. How do you bring that power analysis into your into your work? For me, I don't know. It's I don't really like sit and analyze it, but just naturally, it just seems wrong to punch down. Mm-hmm. You know, when Muslims are already being, I don't know, being targeted. It's so clear now. Right. All over the place. And it's possible to simultaneously punch down in the United States at Muslims while in other countries where they're in the majority, it could actually be looked at as punching up. Right? Oh, absolutely. So there's, it's different. It's not the same everywhere. Yes, of course. So like when I speak to my Muslim relatives, when I'm critical of Islam, my words are so much harsher, you know, mm. but like just even in my blog, like I, I used to write this blog about, um, sexuality in the Muslim world, Pakistan specifically, that's where the, name nice mangoes came from Mm -hmm. um and you know if i my my audience was mainly pakistani so Mm -hmm. me talking to that audience was very different tone you know sometimes i go back and i read it i'm like now that you know people like i i speak to more of a western audience that doesn't come off well you know right because within your group you're like oh brown men fucking you know why are they such assholes or whatever right right and pakistan sucks and what is this barbaric bullshit that they put women through but then here you're saying something is barbaric all of a sudden the far right jumps on it right and uses it to paint like the entire muslim population of the whole world as savages that are coming to invade Right, with just enough daylight between those views where they could say, like you say, the plausible deniability, where they could say, I didn't say all Muslims. Mm-hmm. But they, but, but there's often that insinuation that, and then if you point out the insinuation, what I often get is, well, you read that into what I wrote. I didn't say that. You know, so it's just mm-hmm. this pedantry that's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, people, people come just up short of actually saying what you suspect they're saying. Yeah. You know, and, and, but they leave this. That's the new racism. It's just been polished up a little bit, right? They've just made their tactics more sophisticated. You get that with religious apologists too. Like, you know, you talk to them about a certain verse and you're like, come on, this is so fucked up. And they'll be like, no, you're just misinterpreting it. And they'll just play these like semantic games. And it's like, dude, you know, (laughs) it is written there. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. It's just people trying to justify the worst stuff, right? <clears throat> and this word um, that's hotly contested related to all of this, Islamophobia, how do you feel about that? So it's not the best word because mm-hmm. it does tend to like give conservative Muslim bigots 
a sort of shield, you know, mm-hmm. against criticism, any kind of criticism of Islam, and all of a sudden there's accusations of Islamophobia being thrown at you. Of course, it's fair to criticize Islam, as it's fair to criticize any religion. I mean, these are really ancient ideologies. Of course, they're going to be problematic and worthy of criticism, <laughs> right. right? But then at the same time, what's happening now in the West around Islam, the criticisms that I hear are so far gone. They're so far beyond any normal criticism of a religion. It's just fear-mongering. It's, de- it's a campaign to dehumanize. And so then that term has started to kind of be justified in my eyes, you know? Right. There is a phobe, like a like a mania, like there is a hysteria around Islam. So it's Islam. It's not just Muslims. You know, I used to say like, well, the term should be anti-Muslim bigotry or Muslimophobia, if anything, because right. it's the hate of Muslims that's the problem. But no, there's ways to speak about Islam that are completely dehumanizing to its adherents too. Like, I mean, and and don't get me wrong. Like, I hate Islam. Like, I hate Islam. I don't want to have to explain this to people. Right, right. So, like, there are ex-Muslims, Western ex-Muslims, that will say shit like, Islam is worse than Nazism, you know? yep. And then they'll claim that we're not talking about Muslims, we're talking about Islam. And it's like, yeah, you're just saying that the ideology that all Muslims follow is like Nazism. So what does that make Muslims then, right? Yeah, Nazis, right? Or just right. Or, as, or worse. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous to do that here. If they were in Iran currently, perhaps I could understand their frustration because Iran or Pakistan or whatever, like my atheist friends from Pakistan – they're very, very different and very harsh in their criticisms of Islam, but that that's because the only people there are Muslim. It doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about anti-Muslim bigots hijacking your your speech critiques. Yeah, that's like me criticizing, you know, Jerry Falwell. Exactly. Like it's like duh, like the guy's a bigot and would basically clear the the earth of anyone who disagreed with him if he had the chance to. Like he right. he's a horrible human being. Like And I don't mind saying so because I'm not really endangering anyone's life by saying so. Right. I mean, I don't mind saying that about like Muslim extremist mullahs that are, you know, endangering other people. But then it starts to get, you know, when people are like, oh, but what about everyone that wears a hijab now? You know, and no, there's all kinds of people that wear hijabs. I hate hijabs as well, by the way, like. I'm a pretty harsh critic of hijabs. I've just had to like stop doing that because only Trumpians were supporting my work. And I'm like, I'm not going to let that happen. So, Right. And I think you do. Uh, tell, tell me what you think. I mean, I feel like you can't always like monitor your work based on who's enjoying it. But it seems there comes a point where, you know, when you're in, you know, a fellow traveler with, you know, people like Stephen Molyneux or, yeah, or, um, you know, Paul Joseph Watson. Yeah. Or, or Tommy Robinson, like these mm-hmm. people, like when, when those are your people, like when that's become like their fans are your fans. Like t- to me, mm-hmm. if my name showed up in that manifesto, I don't care how mentally unhealthy that shooter may or may not have been. If my name showed up in that manifesto, I would log off the internet for at least a month and just do some serious Mm self-examination. I just couldn't imagine finding my name in there and just going, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's the work, you know. Yeah, well, I should be free to criticize Islam. Right. What about Christianity? Why why aren't people criticizing the critics of Christianity? Yeah, I would delete my no. Twitter. Like, I would yeah, be- I mean, you have to, you have to really do some soul searching when you get a lot of far right fans, right? Yeah. And uh, anytime I've been retweeted or my work has been taken by those people, if I've noticed it, I've always made a point to say, "No, not you, bigots. Fuck off. I'm criticizing the hijab, but that's coming from an internal place, like right. progressive Muslims even criticize the hijab, you know." 
the harshest criticisms of niqab I've heard mm. are from other Muslims. Right. You know? Yeah. And the like the hijab, not so much, but the face veil, it makes me incredibly angry. I mean, I've had people, a friend, a fr- one, a friend of mine who's African American, you know, strike up a conversation with me about his discomfort or his like real problem with violence within the black community, and mm-hmm. um, and he wanted me to kind of like help him with some of that, and I'm like, man, like as a white guy, I can't talk about like it's not my place. I don't mm. think to talk about black on black violence like that is mm-hmm. that is not that will be taken so wrong. Like I, I don't even have informed opinions about that, to be honest with you. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, that's not my role, you know, and I feel like there sometimes are spaces where you don't really belong in that conversation unless you've been invited or unless something has happened that kind of places you there. Like, I don't but, the, but even when you've been invited, you kind of have to look and see how that looks to everybody else, right? Because right. if you're privately having a conversation with your friend, fine. Right. Talk about whatever. But if you're on a public platform, then everybody's going to see it. And not everyone has consented for you to be the white guy that talks about, I don't know, that makes black-on-black violence his pet subject to talk about yeah and, and and to be clear when i say like i can't talk about that it's not like i'm afraid of some kind of pc violation it's <laughs> it's you know I'm, I'm picturing someone listening going oh he's afraid of the pc police that will you know it's not like i feel silenced about it i literally first of all don't know enough about that topic and second of all don't want to be misconstrued and right. don't want to be lumped in with some people who are trying to avoid the real issue which to me is police brutality um, that's where that usually comes up. Right, right, exactly. So, like, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want my work being co-opted by people who are who are using um, legitimate critiques and then taking them and and using them to dehumanize large groups of people. To me, it makes so much sense, and I, I, I just it gets frustrating, and I'm sure hundreds of times more frustrating for you, having been Muslim yourself, and to to feel like this is so logical. Like, why can't we understand that? There's a time and place and we need to be sensitive. People's lives are involved, people's actual families and feelings. And I know that we don't like to like regard anyone's feelings anymore because everybody's a snowflake if they get their feelings hurt. But people have feelings. And part of being a human being is having feelings. And well, when people are getting killed, it's definitely oh, more than that's right. feelings, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's- so I just don't understand why the people that I used to respect just didn't i don't know they don't they don't shift according to the political climate you can't so like here's an example that i i give people right so when i'm in pakistan there's a very persecuted christian minority it doesn't change my views on christianity when i'm in pakistan i don't all of a sudden love and praise christianity <laughs> right but i don't align with the Islamist bigots that want to shit on Christianity to do so, even though Hmm. maybe this person and me would agree that Christianity sucks, but I know he's not coming at it from a good place. He's coming at it from the place that they're not Muslim. So they're dirty coffers or whatever. Right. So no, I'm not going to embolden you and, and agree with you that Christianity sucks. Right. So if I was to be in Pakistan and go on far right media and be like, oh, look, here we have an atheist, you know, from the West who's here to tell us how shit Christianity is. It would I would be so I would feel so guilty doing that. Dirty, right? Like it just. Yeah, yeah I would just feel. ugh, Yeah. Like a total sellout. Right. And so that's what the ex-Muslims that I'm complaining about do over here when they go on rebel media, when they go on Breitbart and they um, say that Islam needs to be eradicated or that it's not compatible with this planet. For some people, that seems to be a green light to completely not see Muslims as human. And so... Here's the thing. When we get global connectivity, we have to be very mindful of how our stuff is being used, right? So what they do is this one person gets footage of, like, 
some person in Iran frustrated with the Islamist Islamists in power and they as an act of bravery and defiance they burn the Quran now in mm. Saudi or in Iran that means a lot like that's a really brave and dangerous act I'd right. say power to you but when you as a western atheist share that to your western far right audience and say that look at this brave person and this is the kind of stuff we should be doing and cheering on mm. Mm. No, that's very dangerous because you're giving the green light to people who want to um, go and burn Qurans. And then you give the green light to people who aren't coming at it from the place of intellectually maybe destroying and disagreeing with Islam. Mm. They're the people who will want to destroy mosques and want to destroy Muslims, holy books because they see them as less than human. They want to ban Islam. Those kinds of people should not be empowered. Yeah. So you have to be careful using footage from somewhere else in another context and placing it here in a very different climate where the far right, where anti-Muslimness is at such a crazy peak right now. And that's the thing you were saying about context, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. The same act means different things in different places. I just, yeah, I love this kind of thing that's happening now where it's, you know, anytime you inject context or nuance into a conversation about, you know, people's belief systems or their political views, it's it's just seen as a kind of um, softballing or... I have a hard, sometimes I have a hard time like actually putting my finger. It's so slimy. Of course you do. Yeah. It's so slippery and slimy. And and that's the other thing though. A lot of people in this time are cate- are cashing in on like t- tokenism. Oh, right. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, it just sucks. And that's what, that's what I was saying about some ex-Muslims being okay with, selling out to the far right, aligning with them just as long as they are getting their retweets and their Twitter followers and their Patreon swell. And they do, like the other thing is that I've noticed about um, some some famous, Twitter famous people is that they will, like for instance, this one person w- tweeted out some stories about a public official that had some very homophobic views, I think in Canada or something like that. But he was a member of the Muslim community and he was defending his Muslim beliefs that, you know, LGBT people are an abomination, right? And, you know, this particular person's views are, are, are horrific. Like, they're, they, sh- they deserve to be um, criticized, you know, and especially that he's justifying his bigoted views with his religion. I mean, this is the same thing Christians do, et cetera, et cetera. But then these far-right characters you know when they say even when they say something that you can sort of on the surface agree with you can see from the whole context of their career if you can call it that 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 it's part of a more sinister plan to up, sort of uh, uproot or dis- disrupt an entire community of people who probably like everybody else has a few reprehensible ideas but they're still people that are you know embedded in a context that they can't just you know, decide one day that they're going to change all their views all of a sudden. I mean, that's just not how it works. And so I just, I don't know. I just think that some of these people try to curry favor by, by tweet tweeting something that's like factually true that you're like, well, yeah, that's true. Like, or the woman in Iran who was just sentenced to like a hundred lashes or something Mm -hmm. like that. Horrible, horrible sentence. And, um, but it's again, being used to again, say then in the West, like how horrible Islam is and, um, and I suppose it is, right? But I don't know. There's just something so off-putting about the way that those tragedies are used. To but further... Islam is not a monolith either, right? right? Like right. you asked me in the beginning of this show if I, you know, if, if Islam was unhealthy for me and all that. Like, and I told you that I grew up in Saudi, mm-hmm. but also my family has always been very supportive and progressive and open hmm. and. So I had 
have experience with both types of Islam, right? Like in Saudi Arabia, I've experienced the Wahhabi extremist Islam coming from the outside, like from the state. And my family, I've seen like a more, a softer Sufi Islam Mm -hmm. where people like music and dance and, you know. Yeah, poetry and literature. Exactly. Art. So much so that I've seen people on Twitter accuse you of lying about the fact that you were uh, grew up grew up in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is how they delegitim- delegitimize my voice, right? Yeah. Because I'm kind of a disruption to the narrative. Right. I'm an right. ex-Muslim that grew up in Saudi fucking Arabia, <laughs> and I did not come out of it frothing at the mouth, uh, anti-Muslim. Yeah. Wow. Imagine. So that's very inconvenient for some people. I mean, there was a time in the earlier days where I was just speaking like without understanding the greater context, right? So I was speaking as if I was speaking to a group of friends who I know have good intent, who I know are coming from the same place as me. And that's naive of me, I know. Mm. Like I believe that Sam Harris and all of those people are genuine progressive voices who just take issue with the conservatism in Islam. But no, now I see that they're happy to align with and prop up conservatives from the West. So I'm like, what the fuck was that? You know, they're just using me and it feels really dirty. So now I see things in a greater context. Like I, I feel like I've zoomed out and started to see the bigger picture. Right. Yeah. And I don't know so, whether those people are, you know, again, it's it's t- tricky territory and probably shouldn't even wander into territory about motivations. But I, it, I just, it does trouble me when I see people that I've respected in the past who seem very clear headed when they're sorting through the things that you and I are talking about. And then it just seems like the voice changes. And, mm-hmm. it, it, and I, I'm tempted to think, well, they've been bought or they've been, you know, um, co-opted by another cause or something like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the right wing attention is very intoxicating for some, I guess. It's not even necessarily people being bought. It's just the attention you get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you know other um, ex-Muslim voices that we should be listening to that are sort of in this, what I would call a humanist space? That it, that's like, okay, yes, religion is toxic in many of its forms, but religious people are human beings that deserve our love and care. Like, who else in the ex-Muslim orbit is sort of on that wavelength? Oh, I. I can't think of anyone that I would recommend at the moment. I'm that's, sorry. That's like okay. no that's, one that's a public right. figure type person. I mean, there's like small accounts here and there. I don't remember their Twitter handles, but, and yeah. I don't know if they'd be okay with me. Sure. That's t- totally fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. But as far as public figure type people go, I'm, I've, uh, I'm in shock. Like I have lost respect <laughs> For a lot of people recently. And there's also, you know, the the only ones that kind of, the only one I suppose that sort of comes to mind for me that, again, I know individual, like smaller name individuals that nobody would know who they are, but um, someone like Reza Aslan, who... Yeah, he's not an ex-Muslim. He's a current Muslim, that's right. Yeah, uh, and I don't, I don't like him either. Yeah, so. I don't, yeah, I don't like, because it's on the other side of things where... Well, yeah, he then apologizes for a lot of things in Islam and that right. pisses me off, you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking too, that, that it's uh, problematic in the other direction where yeah. he's an example of, I think, of how some of the anti-Muslim bigotry can then be used to sort of silence legitimate concerns about, about faith, uh, religious faith and... Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's so many people like that on the other side, right, where you'll hear stories like there was a story in Toronto, I believe, where there was a mom who took her kid to a community pool and they have a rule where, you know, anyone younger than eight requires adult supervision in the pool. Like if you're an adult with them, you have to get in. You can't sit on the side. Yeah, exactly. 
So that's what they told her. And she was like a Muslim mom. And she's like, I'm not wearing a bathing suit, you know. Uh, and they're like, well, sorry. Like, we can't let your kid in the pool without adult supervision. It's just a rule, yeah. And then she complained that it was Islamophobia. And then that became like headlined. And I'm like, that's really stupid. There's tons of stories like that. And that's not Islamophobia. Right. You're just using that. Like, and that pisses me off too. So I'm in a, like a really weird position, right? But I think your intellectual honesty on issues like that really speaks volumes. And I think it goes a long ways because I think it's easy for two sides to paint each other as like, uh, ideologically bound in a way. Um, but I think when people on the left, which is more where I find myself, you know, when we're able to say, uh, I'll just pick a, a probably an inflammatory example, like when Bernie Sanders, someone that I uh, favor, says something that's really off color or like inappropriate or something that doesn't reflect uh, my values or inclusive of people that I care about. I, you know, I think it's important for people to call out their own, you know, and say, mm-hmm. like, look, Bernie, yes. like, I'm a, I believe in you and I believe in your cause, but no, that was not okay. And mm-hmm. I think it's important that we do that and not become so tribalistic that we can't acknowledge when our, our comrades, our fellow travelers have made a mistake. Right, exactly. And that's the angle I was coming from when I focused on criticizing Islam or even the left, you know, I assume good faith on, the uh, other people who were doing the same, but it turned out there wasn't, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like I would happily criticize the left more in a less anti-left environment, you know, where there's less hostility, where there's more people of good faith around. Like I have a lot of problems with certain types of feminism, Yep. you know, Yep. I would be happy to talk about that, but I'm not going to do that when Ben Shapiro is going to jump on it right. in a second. Yep, and I similar think in, with Islam. And I think this is what you were talking about: spaces, like it, so, in like in Muslim spaces to criticize Islam, or in leftist spaces, because you know I participate in some leftist spaces where we are intensely critical of one another, and mm-hmm. you know whether this certain critique goes far enough, or whether someone's playing softball with certain issues that we find important, or. I, I think there is space. There are places where it's safe to critique each other in in healthy right. ways. Same with atheism, right? Like right. I'm happy to criticize atheism in this online sort of like atheist movement community. But the second that I, if I start to see that like Christian bigots or Muslim bigots right. are hijacking my criticisms of atheism. I'm not going to be comfortable with that. And I'm going to tell them, fuck off. No, not you. Right. You know? Yeah. What you're saying is not what I'm saying. Like you're not. Yeah. Yeah. You're just jumping on it because you hate atheists. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. Well, Ina, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're, uh, you're caring for a a new little one there at home Mm -hmm. and, and uh, that's exciting. How's that going? Pretty good. I mean, he's been, on my lap this whole time he's been pretty good i was worried <laughs> yeah we we had quite a bit of conversation about how to time it just right so i guess we did it yeah 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 <laughs> we did it so if you hear any like i don't know heavy breathing or cooing or whatever yeah that's not me <laughs> okay <laughs> that's awesome well thanks again for sharing your time with us and on this such a timely subject and um we'll see you back online yeah thanks for having me on So yeah, this is a complicated topic and one that needs to be handled with sensitivity. And unfortunately, today, there's a great lack of sensitivity when it comes to ideas that we want to criticize and critique. Here in the West, especially in the United States, Muslims are a minority community that get attacked and hassled and bullied each and every day. In the West, we need to be extremely cautious with our critiques and make sure that we're separating between people and ideas and even recognize those times when separation between people and the ideas they hold really isn't possible due to the, uh, the, the nature of the beliefs that they hold and the historical and, and political context of that very moment. There's a time for criticism, as Ina has said, and there's a time to be quiet and just care for people who are hurting. And I hope that each of us will continue to look at ourselves in the mirror and struggle and strive to find that uh, correct uh, balance in our personal approach. 
If you appreciate this podcast and want to learn more, I invite you to visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you'll find all the ways to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. I hope you'll do that to stay in touch with all the things that we are doing. If you want to be a part of making this podcast happen and support us financially, I really appreciate that. This is a labor of love and would not be possible without the nearly 60 contributors that help every month to make this show a reality. If you want to be a part of that community, I would invite you to visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod where you can make a monthly contribution of any size from $1 a month up to whatever this podcast is worth to you. If you want to write to me, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can reach me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I hope you join us next time as I talk with my friend Aaron Rabinowitz about moral realism and metaethics as we try to dive deeper into this question of what's right and what's wrong and how we know and what we can do to be more ethical people. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Podcast.